Hi, um, this is Meredith Cole. Um, I am here with Clifford Garstang and Michael Zapata, and we are going to be doing um, something a little different, which is we are going to have our book panel that was supposed to happen at the Virginia Festival of the Book um, a couple days ago, uh, Stories of Displacement Fiction Far From Home. Uh, we're going to have it virtually because the Festival of the Book, as well as many other activities here in 2020, were canceled um, due to coronavirus. So it just seems such a shame. I'd read their wonderful books and I really wanted a chance to talk to them and introduce their books to other people. So um, I'm really, um, thank you guys so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's great to be here. And um, we had another person on our panel who couldn't make it. And I know everyone's life is a little bit upended at the moment. Um, Mimi Locke, and she's the author of Last of Her Name. She's a recipient of the Smithsonian American Ingenuity Award and an award for fiction, which I, I would have to ask her to live this sacred. I feel so horrible when I don't know how to pronounce these things. She's executive director of the human rights nonprofit Voice of Witness. And so we were sorry she couldn't be here. But I want to introduce my two guests who are here. Um, Clifford Garstang is the author of The Shaman of Turtle Creek, which won the Library of Virginia Literary Award for fiction. Um, Oh, he won the library. Sorry, I'm, I'm like right now. I'm, I'm already starting off badly writing or reading everything. <laughs> he won the Library of Literary Award Fiction for his novel in stories, What the Zang Boys Know, and is also the author of the story collection in an uncharted country. And that's your Festival of the Book bio. I'm sure there's so many more things we could say because I've actually interviewed you for my podcast. <laughs> 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 um, Michael Sabato, who I've never had the, the privilege of meeting, and I'm sorry I didn't get to meet you this year, is the author of yes. The Lost Book of Adana Moreau, is a graduate of the University of Iowa, a founding editor of Make, a literary magazine, and a recipient of an Illinois Arts Council Award for Fiction. As an educator, he taught literature and writing in high school servicing dropout students. So anyway, thanks so much for joining me. And um, I don't know who would like to start, but I'd like for each of you to tell us a little bit about your latest book. Go ahead, Absolutely, yeah. Um, so thank you again so much for for doing this um so it's my debut novel the lost book of adana moreau it's essentially about a dominican exile in 1916 who after the american marines land on the island um she she becomes exiled and she ends up in new orleans married to a self-proclaimed the last pirate of the new world um it's in new orleans where she forms a family it's where she writes uh, a cult classic what ends up being a cult classic science fiction novel called Lost City. Um, tragically, just after finishing the sequel, um, she she becomes ill and she destroys the sequel, which is called The Model Earth. Then in 2004, the, the manuscript, which had supposedly been destroyed, does is found by Saul Drower um, in the year 2004 in Chicago. And he is an exiled Israeli who was raised by his grandfather um and so the the narrative itself sort of turns into a literary mystery and trying to find adana moreau's son maxwell moreau who's a theoretical physicist so it, it wraps around sort of the 20th 20th century early 21st century and it comes to a culmination in post katrina new orleans yeah and um i know i really i have a couple of questions for you later um 
there was a lot of um, really interesting um, narrative within the narrative and story within the story. And I'm going to be interested to talk to you a little bit more about that later. But um, Cliff, tell us a little bit about the Shaman of Turtle Valley. Valley. Um, so this is my first novel, although I've done uh, story collections before. And in part, it was inspired by um, some of the same themes that I explored in my first story collection, which is uh, people looking for a way to fit in in their community. And so the book is about Aiken Alexander, who is um, was a young man growing up on a farm in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, doesn't feel like he belongs there, and is looking for a way to get out. And he does that by way of the army, which sends him into battle during Gulf War One in the early 90s. And then he lands in an army base in Korea, where he meets and marries a very young Korean woman. And when he brings her home to Virginia, she obviously doesn't fit in there. She feels displaced uh, and that causes friction, not only between the two of them, but also with his family. And she deals with her uh, cultural isolation and, and uh, culture shock by practicing traditional Korean shamanism and that um, frightens uh, her husband's mother, who comes from a long line of traditional Appalachian healing women. And these two women come into conflict, uh, and that's really what kicks the book off. But what the main conflict of the book is, uh, is between Aiken and the rest of his family, cousins who believe that they have been unfairly cut out of the family inheritance. And so there are family secrets that uh, everyone is trying to uncover to figure out what's going on. Um, so that's basically it. They're all looking for a way to fit in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so just curious, you know, to start the conversation, and, and I do want this to be a conversation more than a you know, you answer the question, you answer the question, but responding to one another. But um, just to start off, when you were starting this, these books, did you start um, with plot or characters or setting or, or an idea? Um, yeah, I, I, I could jump in. Um, by the way, just as a quick side note, Clifford, you're, you're, novel sounds extraordinary I, I when you were talking about it i was thinking my my mother's family is lithuanian jewish and my dad's family is from ecuador so fitting in has been a huge part of my life as, as a person and, and as a novelist um the, as, as far as um where i where i thought i started for the novel i i, I that first sentence i wrote the first sentence of the novel was his father was a pirate really just started with this idea of this sort of modern day pirate in New Orleans. But I think for me, the, the main thing I wanted centered around was writing about people who have been exiled and I, I didn't have any plans. And just with that concept, I just kind of took it page by page. Oh, so interesting. So like a yeah. first sentence and an idea, really. That's all. Yeah. And, and for me, the, it was just writing sentence by sentence and, and allowing whatever was going to happen happens yeah obviously with an enormous amount of editing <laughs> later but but uh, um 
that's sort of the process I followed. Cool. What about you, Cooper? Well, um, a similar process, I guess. I began with the idea of Aiken Alexander, uh, who, as I said, the, the themes I was interested in were themes that I had already dealt with um, about somebody looking for a way to fit in. And so I imagined this character, I guess, so then I started with him trying to raise his young son. What is it like for a single father? And then everything else sort of grew up around that. Uh, I needed to answer the question, well, why is he a single father? Where's the mother? Uh, what uh, is the problem that he is trying to deal with and how does he deal with it? So I really, it began with the seed of the single father and then everything else sort of formed like a pearl around that um, one grain of sand. Oh, so interesting. So really um, a character start. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I, um, I think it's so interesting. Um, the, um, I think that, that often having, um, I don't know, just having that sense of not fitting in or being an outsider is like perfect to make you a writer. (laughs) (laughs) And so maybe we all sort of feel that, but I think there's a, there's something about, um, being a stranger in a strange land or, uh, not yeah. being like everybody else that makes people yeah. particularly, you know. And I, I, I 100% I, you know, I feel you know, growing up in Chicago and, and, and like I had said, my father is an immigrant from Ecuador and my mother's family is Lithuanian Jewish. So there was this sort of two, two lineages of being outsiders um, and carrying those stories, I think, through. And, and growing up, my sisters and I growing up biracial, I, you know, it's as an adult now that I have children, I'm recognizing that there's so few places for biracial people in the United States. And there's this sense of, if not being an outsider, not perfectly fitting in or being accepted by either family or, you know, even your community. Like I grew up when I was young in, in a predominantly sort of a Latino community, but then, you know, it's like, oh, but you're also Jewish. And then, right. and then the flip side happening. And I don't know so much if that initially made me a writer, but it definitely made me a reader right. when I was young. Right. Yeah. And it, and it definitely afforded me, I think, what I later learned in life, this, this enormous opportunity to listen um, and, and listen to stories of exile, listen to both families who never quite felt like they fit in. And my father's family lives in, in, in uh, Ecuador now, but or they've always lived in Ecuador, sorry, but you know, he's, he was an immigrant and, and growing up among other Latinos from other countries who are, were trying to find their place in a, in a, in a new nation. So I, it's this like weird liminal space, this in-between space that um, I think you're forced to find some joy in and you're supposed to your own access to culture and I don't know if it's a solution I don't know um if I will ever feel like I uh fit in but that's okay I think that's okay right maybe you value that or you see the value in that as an adult um I I was um I'm the daughter of an immigrant my father actually came from England so um but you know he never lost his accent he came as an adult yeah yeah and um and there was lots of things he didn't understand 
about America. <laughs> you know, like he'd be like, SATs. It's a hard place to understand. <laughs> SATs, what's that? You know, baseball, it's not as good as cricket. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, he, <laughs> but also, um, just, just, and I'm going to jump to a little bit, but just also, he was, um, uh, he had he had been he'd come of age during World War Two, in a country oh, yeah. under attack, and I think it took me probably until I was an adult to really understand that a lot of the neuroses I felt from him as a kid, you know, came from that, you know, worrying about safety or you know, just the different things, Absol- the different abs- things that happened. Absolutely. Yeah, clever. I know that you have lived all over the world. So is that what you bring to your sort of your story of exile or did you have other layers in your life that you I think that's pretty much it, although I was trying to relate um, to Michael's background a little bit. Um, Growing up in central Illinois and then going to the big city for college to Chicago, um, I felt pretty much an outsider there. but not in a very emotional, fundamental way, I don't think. And I, so I didn't really feel like an outsider until right after college when I joined the Peace Corps and lived in Korea. And that's really where I think I never felt at home. I loved living there, but uh, it was never home. I was never part of a family there. And then later uh, in my professional career, I lived in Singapore and Central Asia and Again, never felt at home. So I think that's maybe I've not even thought about this until now, Meredith, but but clearly that's uh, why I am sort of obsessed with the idea of trying to fit in. You're making me feel like Terry Gross here. Are you, <laughs> are, are you gonna start crying because <laughs> my day will be made? <laughs> well, I, I love that. Um, my husband's an artist, and he would always say, um, and I'd say, I don't understand what this is about. He would say, It's not for you to understand, <laughs> for uh... someone else to understand. So sometimes somebody comes through and they say, and you're like, Really? That's what that's about. And that's super. I think that's super cool. I think that's why we write and publish as opposed to write in our journal only yeah Um, yeah yeah um do you think it's possible to ever feel at home in a new land i mean is leaving a homeland inherently tragic and i'm actually talking more about the books too that you have if you want to bring those up because yeah i i feel that there's such a sense of loss even though perhaps where you left you fled because it was horrible like can you ever sort of reconnect to a new space? Well, I think in, in my book, the, the real issue is where uh, does Lee Soon-hee, the, the Korean woman who's the shaman, uh, end up? And she clearly doesn't feel at home. She is longing for the mountain village where she grew up in Korea, even though she does draw connections between the landscape that she sees in Virginia with her home landscape. Um, And she talks a lot about going home, by which she means going back to the village. But ultimately, it's not clear that that that's where she needs to be. And and I think that she is is looking for a way to make this her new home. She does, after all, have connections in this new home. Her son now lives here. Um, and she 
may or may not succeed, but I think that she's looking for a home. And the same is true for for um, the main character, Aiken, who, I mean, I, it's kind of a heavy-handed metaphor, I think, but he, he spends his time building birdhouses. And by that, I hope readers understand that he is trying to build a home. Um, yeah. And so that's, I think he succeeds ultimately in building a home. Um, even though he doesn't feel like he really belongs. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's this, I, I really love that idea. Um, Clifford, I love the idea of, of, of having to build something in, in, a, in, a, new, in a new place. I, in my novel, it you know, starts off with the Dominicana, uh, Donna Moreau ending up in New Orleans. And, and there was a couple things I've always thought about New Orleans, which a city which in itself is a parallel universe and a home <laughs> away from home uh, has always been for me. And I think it is for the Dominicana. So she, she lands in, in New Orleans exiled. She finds um, a librarian who's Haitian and ends up being a very close friend. She um, truly is in love with her husband. She has a child. Um, but even all that said, I, I would say that if I had to say for the character of the Dominicana, she does find a home in New Orleans, yes, but she also finds more of a home in literature mm-hmm. um, in the process by which she learns to read because of her best friend who's a librarian, a Haitian librarian. She she finds a specific type of ubiquitous home in, in literature, and I think that's what draws her to be a writer. And She writes the science fiction novel about parallel universes and a Dominicana who ends up sort of being like a heroine. Um, but it, it was through that process. I really liked that clip because it was through that process. I think where, where, where you build, you have to build uh, um, an aspect of your own home. And the flip side of that is in 2004, um, the character Saul Drower who lives in Chicago and he's an exile from Israel. I, I think he very clearly never feels at home. And, and in fact, he, often talks to his best friend, Javier, who's a, a foreign correspondent about this process by which he, the strange, surreal process by which he was almost forced to become an American. Um, so I, I think it's quite, of course, very different for different people, but I also, you're talking about it just now. So yeah, you are doing a lot of awesome <laughs> things. I'm, I'm sort of realizing that these two characters, one, finds a home and, and tragically passes young and, and, and the one who never quite does. Um, and I don't want to give away if he ever does feel like he's at home or not, but he struggles with that. And he's in his early thirties when we find him, which is sort of a solidifying age for what it means for family and home. So such a, such a good, such a good question. I, I guess we're saying you have to make your own home or sort of perish in memory right, or, or get lost. Well, yeah, I liked what Clifford, what you were saying earlier, too, it made me wonder, and I kind of, you know, so you always write the book, and then you have the things that you, you could have written, or you could have <laughs> had a future chapter or an epilogue, you know what I mean, you can always revise and, you know, whatever in your mind, but um, I did kind of imagine for a minute, your character going back to that village in Korea, and realizing that she couldn't go back. And that's what I kind of imagined with your character too, Michael, that that yeah. when you leave a homeland, especially if you're young, going back, it's not the same as it was. That place has moved on. <laughs> yes. 
Yes. And the world has caught up with it and you might have some vision of it, you know, as this rural, you know, idealized place that you were young in. But I think the world is becoming more and more global and it's and it's really fascinating. I think we idealize our childhoods and I think that's why, you know, I've I've had friends who have been well into their 50s and have almost had a nervous breakdown when their parents have sold their childhood home. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I think, excuse me, I think too, like, I, Donna's, you know, in, in my novel, Donna's um, son, Maxwell Moreau, who, you know, is, um, is biracial as well. And, you know, I'm just thinking, even unfolding like this because your question like he to the extent that he never finds a home in america he actually as an adult when he's a theoretical physicist leaves for for the majority of the rest of his life and he does end up returning to new orleans and contends with that fact of of thinking about it when he was a child versus what he was as an adult and that's a specific i think thing for a city like new orleans which in itself is so tethered to the past and has this sort of elegant connection to the past um, Chicago is always what's next, right? It's very much like we we appreciate, keep, and love the history, but it's always like, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? Mm-hmm. So a, a place like New Orleans has a very clear, elegant connection to the past. And he, I always thought in that concern, like Italo uh, Calvino wrote that uh, just beautiful collection of vignettes, the invisible uh, invisible cities. And I was going to ask if that was an influence for you. That's a that's an amazing I, book. Yeah, I, I I feel like it's always always an influence in the sense that contesting with this city is like contesting with invisible cities inside of invisible cities inside. Not only in the ways we I think navigate it with our memory, but also this this sense of like you exactly like you said, like exactly like Cliff was talking about. Can you return to the village? And when you return to the city, what does that do to your memory? Um, and, and you're so you're searching for a city that no longer exists or you can see, but is inherently there um so it's it's such a good question cliff and you had i mean you have a character who comes back to where he was after traveling the world um i mean did you imagine other scenarios where where you know um his wife returns back or any other well i certainly did um you know she well early on in the book she uh the wife kidnaps the son and there is some question about whether she is planning to take him back to Korea and give up on life in America. And certainly that is the fear that Aiken, the main character, has that he will lose them both um, this way. And so I did imagine that as a, as a real possibility, mostly because I want the reader to realize that that is a real possibility. So there's this... Uh, tension and risk there and then um without giving too much away there is still the possibility that that's where she ends up uh, going home mm-hmm. um yeah so can, can i ask michael a question sure absolutely having this conversation so michael i just finished reading your book and i i found it the character of javier very interesting because even though he's a, sort of a secondary character, yeah. he comes back to Chicago uh, with a, for a job at the Chicago Tribune. But he is so restless. He, yeah. he can't sit still. He needs to go back out into the world. And as um, 
as Saul says, he's sort of addicted to disaster and yeah. he has to, to go. And that's one of the reasons why he is keen to go to New Orleans with Saul to, to see if they can find Maxwell. So yeah. I, I found his character to be really a useful um, trigger for some of the great things that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. I, you know, Javier, you know, being being a foreign correspondent in Ecuadorian, I, I always thought in a parallel universe, I, I would want to be a foreign correspondent. I spent a lot of my time, actually, in, in my late 20s, like, convincing foreign correspondents to go drinking with me. <laughs> <So it's> like, <laughs> Doing research. They, it was research. Yeah, it was like accidental research. They just, they just had these extraordinary stories. And, and when they pulled the veil of what they actually the veil of what they actually had to write about, you know, and they made it personal. And I became really sort of obsessed with reportage, but Javier being very, very, yeah, he's, he's a very restless first generation um, Latino Chicagoan. And, and, and I think in, in him, this, this, what unfolds is sort of that restlessness. And I think in one sense, he's attracted to the American restlessness, but also the consequences of, you know, like he said, he's like, he's addicted to disaster. And, and you know, as we're seeing events unfold and, and, and tragedies that are happening over the United States for the past 20 years, this sense of like disaster capitalism, the sense of, of how do we respond to disasters? And I think he's fully fundamentally wrestling with the fact of wanting to be a journalist and wanting to tell the stories of people affected by disaster, but also inherently trapped in the American process by which we tell stories, which is, you know, like sensationalize and capitalize off off the disaster immediately. And I think it hurts him. I think like he's restless, and I think when he wrestles with that with Saul, um, I think we have a character that that is very much wrestling with America in that sense. Um, you know, I, it's it's so funny. Like someone had read both the Saul character and the Javier character, and they're like, "Well, the, the, you're both like." You know, me as, as a person, you're both like very restless and also, <laughs> also as a writer, very like stationary. So I, I think I was just trying to express not myself or my biography, but just those sort of emotions mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the process of writing. And, but thank you for noticing that. Yeah, I, I think America right now is wrestling uh, with our obsessions with disaster, unfortunately. Yeah. That's sort of perfect, though, because if, if you are split between Saul and Javier, um, not to put words in your mouth, but yeah, I, I think maybe I am as well between yeah. Aiken and, and Soon He, the, the person who is settling into a new homeland yes. uh, and somebody who is resettling back into their old home. Um, maybe that's what we always do is put different parts of ourselves into different characters. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure, right? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I read this interesting science article that was saying, <laughs> not to bore our listeners with some science right now, but there was this science article I read that said um, hippocampus, the part of the brain in which we help navigate and store memories, is also the first place we access when we imagine things or predict. And so it's like almost inescapable, I think, as writers to not access your own memories and rearrange them. Um, but I just thought that was extraordinary how we're both tethered to the future and the past at the same time. Well, Not only when we sit down as, as writers, but when we when we think about our own lives. Well, you know, I mean, I think of us a little as like actors, you know, that yeah. you, you bring a piece of yourself every time 
you inhabit a new character when you write about a character. So it's really hard to get yourself completely out of the character. I mean, yeah. you're gonna start emo- you're gonna start giving them emotions, and you can't completely take yourself out of that. You're the voice. You know, Perhaps. you're the you're the you're giving the point of view. Well, this actually brings me to my next question, which was sort of like, how much research do you do before you start writing? I mean, it sounds like Michael, you're talking a lot of stuff coming from personal experience, and obviously Clifford, you lived in Korea, so you you it wasn't like you were starting over and being like, huh, what's a Korean name I can think of or <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever. But did you do you um do you first do do concentrated research and then write or write and then research a little bit or do you just not research at all? Well, for this book, I did have to do a fair amount of research on Korean shamanism. I had been exposed to that when I lived there um, in sort of a a touristy way, even though I wasn't a tourist. Shamanism is practiced both uh, authentically and then for international consumption. And and so I I did need to do some research uh, about that. And, And because I was comparing it or tying it to Appalachian uh, superstitions, I also had to do some research about that. Um, So that was um, the research I did for this book. Uh, I'm currently working on a a book that's partly historical, though, and I have done a ton of research on that. And and it's interesting you say, do you write first and then research or, or the other way around? And I, I did write a lot, not knowing the facts. <laughs> and then I went and learned the facts um, and, but and had to rewrite. rewrite. But, but yeah, was, yeah. But at least I knew the story that I wanted to tell and I could make the facts fit into my story. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, I, I it, it's so hard to determine that this was, yeah, being being my debut novel, I think I probably did too much research in the beginning. Uh, the novel itself is very much full of stories and stories and vignettes, and a lot of those take place in historical periods. The Argentine Great uh, Great Depression in two thousand one, uh, the Russian Revolution, and you know the Great Depression itself in the United States. And and early on, I I didn't know how to access all the material or research, and I was reading pretty substantially about all those. I, I think it wasn't until I was talking to a friend of mine who was a writer and reader, because I was expressing this sort of like historical guilt. Like, how do you get, how do you get anything right uh, when you're writing historical fiction? And, and she had mentioned, it's like, you don't because the people who experience it don't get it right. The only thing you should be concerned about is how the individual you're writing about processes the history or the time period they live in. And it, it just opened up this whole new, vantage point and and then i the majority of the research i did after that was hunting down oral histories hmm. um uh, of the time periods and and it, it for me that yeah, was that a way to sort of access the history as both a writer and someone who's like just deeply interested in the historical events i um i think cliff you'll appreciate this you know being being born in illinois um but i became quite obsessed with studs turkle <laughs> yeah uh, I mean, I was before I was a writer even because he's such a Chicago Titan. Um, but the way in which the ways in which he was able to access sort of the oral histories of people and the way he was able to ask the right questions at the right time to unfold these narratives, I think picking up a 
a book, uh, oral history book by Studs Terkel, very much feels like a piece of literature because the way he's able to get people to tell their own stories and paint a picture of themselves. And for me, that was like a key to 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 moving on and, and the writing process. Well, Saul's grandfather is very much a Studs Terkel type yes. of character. So yeah, <laughs> totally stolen from. And and Cliff, I I, I have to ask only because. Um, you know, in, in, in Ecuador, there's, there's, you know, the steep history of shamanism. I am working. I feel like we should have a long talk just separately too. Like the, um, I'm, I'm researching about indigenous shamanism a little bit because of the book I'm writing on right now takes place in the Amazon in the future. Um, I just have to ask what, uh, what material, uh, are, are, did you dig into or is it anthropological material? Was it, um, first-hand accounts of people you knew when you were traveling. I'm, I'm just fascinated with how to access this sort of, how to think about this spirituality coming in as an outsider. It sounds like an, an extraordinarily interesting and fun process. I guess the answer is anthropological. Um, yeah. When I lived in Korea, I met an American woman who actually had been a Peace Corps volunteer in Korea before me who was working on her PhD in anthropology and she was studying oh, wow. Korean shamanism. And so, and that stuck with me. I had remembered her name all these many, many, many years later and uh, looked her up and found three books that she had published on Korean shamanism. Oh, wow. So I really um, relied heavily on her research. Huh. And, and, and her stories, her studies were very much um, personal studies. So she viewed wow. lots of people who either were shamans or had experience um, with shaman practices and ceremonies. So wow. very useful material um, for me. Oh, I, so awesome. I adore that. I just picked up a book called How Forests Think Toward an Anthropology Beyond the Human, um, which is centered on in indigenous Ecuadorians, but it, it talks about going beyond what we think of as, as the forest or the Amazon as just like a spiritual place for indigenous peoples, but in the ways in which, and my grandmother was indigenous, the ways in which indigenous peoples are able to access um, the forest as livelihood and as spirituality and, and community, but like going beyond, going beyond it and actually uh, ascribing anthropological views into the forest. It, it's this, it's a little difficult at first, the theory, but then when they introduce these oral histories, it's just fascinating. Um, oh, we have to have a separate talk. <laughs> this is so fascinating. I, I feel mean. like the Virginia Festo, the book, <laughs> like is, after, like a, yeah. is like a writer's dating. Um, <laughs> 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 like, you guys should be friends. You guys have so much in common. <laughs> Next book, go on tour together. Um, <laughs> um, so actually, this brings me to, I, we just, I just wanted to... Um, start wrapping it up this we could probably talk all day but i know <laughs> we have other things to do like buy provisions um, yeah, yeah. um but i i wanted to it sounded like we we're just trying to hint at what you're writing next and i always like to find out you know what are you working on what's your next project yeah um I'm, so i'm working and i'm in the very loose strange sort of research uh space right now but um, working on a, a, about an Ecuadorian ecologist who, who gets lost in the Amazon. And it also follows the, the life of her son, who is a census taker in Chicago in the year 2050. 
um, and, and and he's telling it's first person so far, and he's telling the story of how he ended up in a black site prison in Chicago in the year 2050 and, and uh, how his mother got lost in the Amazon. And he's telling this you know, almost like theater monologue to an ant, A-N-T, that wanders into his prison black site. That's all I have. I don't know what's going to become of it, but um, that's what I'm kind of wrestling with. So you've just answered our, do you outline or write by the seat of your pants? <laughs> uh, you know, in, in my in my head, the very, the only idea I had was what if someone in a prison was telling a, like a 200 page monologue to an animal? That's all. Like, I just, I don't know why, um, but that's, I'm going to go with it. See what happens. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fascinating. <laughs> Clint. It sounds great. Um, well, I, I am working on a new book, but in the meantime, I have two other books that are um, coming out. So oh, I have a, a short story collection that's coming out in May. Uh, unless the world ends. Yeah. Um, uh, that's called House of the Ancients and Other Stories. Um, it's set in lots of parts of the world. Um, um, Asia, Mexico, various other places. Looking forward to that. It's coming awesome. out from Press 53, which published my first two story collections also. And then I have a novel coming out in 2021 called Oliver's Travels, and Ooh. it's about um, a young man who um, is having uh, maybe an existential crisis, and he's a philosopher anyway, or he thinks he is, <laughs> he wants to be, and he is trying to uncover a family secret, um, and that leads him to travel all over the world looking awesome. for his uncle. So um, that that's fun, and that's coming out in a year. And then the book that I'm working on now, the one that I've been researching and, and writing for quite a while, is a blended historical and contemporary story about a woman, a lawyer who moves from New York to Singapore after uh, 9-11. Um, and she becomes kind of obsessed with a an artist she learns about who was practicing in Singapore an English woman artist uh, during World War One, and Ooh, cool. so we get stories told from the points of view of both the the lawyer in uh, 2002, and then also um, this English artist in 1914 and 15. Interesting. Wow. That sounds awesome. You guys do. You really have so many similarities. It's so interesting. <laughs> I love the multiple narrators and the time different time periods yeah. different places displacement also you know what are the what, what makes us all the same and also what makes us all different in those time periods and i just think that's really fascinating this was such a good match <laughs> <laughs> thank you. but um but anyway i just wanted to thank you guys both so much um for being willing to do a podcast since we couldn't yes. be together um Absolutely. i also wanted to just encourage people to um to buy from independent bookstores. Um, I know a lot of them have set up sort of delivery and that sort of thing. And you can find these guys' books, I'm sure, everywhere. Um, and and also um, the um, Virginia Book Festival, it cost a lot actually for them to cancel. And, um, and I really admire the fact that they did it early enough so that everyone could 
make other arrangements and cancel their, you know, their, their trip. Um, but um, I just want to encourage everyone just to make sure that we have it again um, to um, donate to vabook.org and just, you know, support them and let them know that we miss them. And um, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for everyone who listened. And um, I hope, Michael, that you can come another year. We would love to see you here in Virginia. Yes, my pending Virginia heart is <laughs> will we'll be there. Thank you so much, uh, Cliff and Meredith. I, ju- I just had a joy talking today. It was so Thank wonderful. You, and I hope to see you soon, Cliff, when we don't have to do practice social distancing anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Yeah. Thanks.